Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our podcast today will be a little different. Because the Alabama Historical Association postponed its 2020 convention, Secretary Mark Wilson has arranged video panel discussions about the future of Alabama history shown live on Facebook. The AHA recorded these sessions, and to reach a larger audience, we are proud to present them as edited audio in the Alabama History Podcast. Hello and welcome. I am Mark Wilson, Secretary of the Alabama Historical Association and Director of the Caroline Marshall Drawn Center for the Arts and Humanities in the College of Liberal Arts at Auburn University. We're delighted to convene another 2020 and the future of Alabama history conversation on historic markers. Today we welcome Barbara Hillier from Seattle, Washington, Stephen Skip Davis from Washington, D.C., Dr. Richard Bailey and Scotty Kirkland of Montgomery to discuss the Charles Oscar Harris marker story. Our first speaker will be Barbara. Thanks, Barbara, for joining us. And uh, we look forward to hearing this story of a unique and important marker. Thank you, Mark, and thank you to the Historical Association for inviting us to share our story and our connections to Alabama history. The marker that we'll be talking about was the home of Charles Oscar Harris. He lived in Montgomery and was a well-known Republican and active member of the Montgomery Black community. He was born in Tuskegee in 1858, died in Montgomery in 1913, having served more than 30 years in the Montgomery Post Office and the state legislature. Dr. Bailey will be talking more about his accomplishments in this program, and my cousin Skip and I will be talking more about the personal aspects of his life and family. I want you to know the story of how a historical marker in Montgomery united the descendants of Charles Oscar Harris, my great-grandfather, for the very first time. I grew up white on the West Coast, and I never knew any of my dad's family or where he came from. I became a public school teacher, and I taught U.S. history, among other subjects. Years after my father died, I was in my 30s, and I learned that he had a sister in Hawaii, and I went to meet her. She explained to me how my father's family was African-American and that he had begun passing as white in the 1940s, which was before I was born, which is why I had never met my aunt or other members of their family. I became close with that aunt. I met her in 1988. She had held various political offices in Hawaii for over a 50-year span. She was featured on the cover of Ebony magazine in 1963 when she was elected to political office in an era when neither women nor black people were welcomed in leadership positions. She was the granddaughter of Charles Harris. She left the mainland to go to Hawaii in 1947 because of limited opportunities for her to become a teacher or otherwise become involved in politics. 
After my aunt died in 2013, I became interested in learning more about the rest of my dad's family. Helene's daughter had told me about a cousin in Washington, D.C., so I planned a trip in 2014 to meet my cousin, who you'll meet soon, and his family. Now, Skip grew up African-American in Washington, D.C., so as you can imagine, we had a lot to catch up on when we met. I was in my 60s and Skip was in his 70s. When he was a child, he had lived with his grandmother, would be my great-grandmother, Ellen Hassel Hardaway Harris, who was the widow of Charles Oscar Harris. He knew the family history from his mother, my grandmother's sister. I had no idea that my grandmother had grown up in Montgomery because I didn't know her at all, and that in fact her family went back generations, both white and black, and that made me very curious about Alabama history, which I otherwise knew very little about. While I was researching from my home in Portland, my brother lives in Seattle, I live in Portland, Oregon, I came across the book, Neither Carpetbaggers Nor Scalawags, Black Office Holders During the Reconstruction of Alabama, 1867 to 1878, and Charles Oscar Harris was mentioned in this. So when I went to visit Skip, I thought it would be a good hostess gift or, you know, a guest gift to bring with me. However, when I got there, Skip pointed out that his name was in the index. So I was a little bit late and behind the, but I was just learning all of this. So Skip filled me in on what he knew about his mother's family and shared more family photographs. And he encouraged me to go to Montgomery and meet Dr. Richard Bailey, the author of the book. I'd never thought about going to Montgomery, but it seemed like a good idea. And two years later, in 2016, I did that. And Dr. Bailey generously agreed to meet with me and took me to the Alabama archives, where I met Scotty Kirkland, and I spent a few days tracing down information there at your archives. As a history teacher, I was very interested in all the plaques that made history so available on the street. But I couldn't help but notice, although there were many plaques designated people, events, locations, during the times of slavery and the modern civil rights movement, there was very little information about black people in Montgomery in the decades between the Civil War and the Civil Rights Movement. It was a struggle to find much evidence at all of the life and times of Charles Harris in all the decades he lived in Montgomery. There was a plaque near the Capitol commemorating Reconstruction-era legislators, and Charles Oscar Harris's name was on that. But other than that, the public recognition that I saw was overwhelmingly a perspective of white history. Dr. Bailey graciously toured my friend and I around Montgomery, where we saw the Montgomery Theater in the process of being demolished. He explained to me that he believed that Charles Oscar Harris was among the first African Americans to challenge civil rights laws in Alabama when he bought tickets to be seated in that theater. He also took me to Oakwood Cemetery, where Charles Harris is the only member of his large family who is buried there. The rest of the family left. At that time, Dr. Bailey asked me if our family would be interested in sponsoring a commemorative plaque to celebrate the accomplishments of our esteemed ancestor on the occasion of Alabama's bicentennial in 2019. So I enthusiastically contacted my brother in Seattle and Skip and his family on the East Coast, and they all thought it was a great idea to embark on the project. So in April of 2019, 
16 members of the extended family of Charles Oscar Harris came from Seattle, Washington. I came from Portland, Oregon. My niece from Madison, Wisconsin. Skip and his family from Washington, D.C. and New York City to meet each other for the very first time. We gathered for three days in Montgomery to commemorate the plaque. And how lucky now we know that it was 2019, not 2020, or this would never have happened. We were honored to be able to tell our story publicly and to give Charles Harris the place he deserves in Alabama history. We need to thank Richard Bailey for keeping history alive long enough to invite us back into it, because without his research and his book, we never would have been reconnected to each other or to Montgomery. Now my cousin Skip will fill in some more details. Hi, let me introduce myself. My name technically is Stephen Davis, but everyone, as you can see, calls me Skip, so we'll stick with that. I am, to my knowledge, the last living grandson of Charles Oscar Harris and Ellen Redaway Hassel Hardaway Harris. I have one other cousin, Jacqueline Harris, who lives in Connecticut and is the daughter of Booker and Alberta Harris. I would like to personally thank Mark, Barbara, Richard, and Scotty for allowing me to join them in this presentation and discussion. I have enjoyed researching my family history, mainly with the assistance of my older daughter, Stephanie, who is the master of the Ancestry.com searches, Barbara, and Richard. It's been a lifelong quest and continues as more and more information comes to light. My knowledge of Charles Oscar Harris has been very limited until the last few years. He died in 1913, and the raising of his 10 children fell upon his wife, Ellen Harnell. Ellen, who I did know and like as a good child, spent my early years around her until she eventually passed away in 1956. She was 95 and is currently buried in Lincoln Cemetery outside of Washington, D.C. After the children were grown and most had moved on, Ellen moved from Montgomery to Washington and lived with my mother. I believe that it was because she lived with us that I got to know all of my relatives. It fell upon my mother to be the family caretaker of her until she died. Ellen Harris, Charles's wife, we've had more luck researching her ancestors than those of Charles Oscar Harris, who, as a we know was born in Tuskegee to Georgia Floyd, and that's all basically we know. All of Charles and Ellen's children were educated, attained colleges and professional degrees, and went on to develop successful careers, most married and raised families. Charles Oscar Harris was born in Tuskegee on August 5th, another day I have in common with him. We do not know his father, and all we have been able to gather is his name of his mother. As a child, and when the family was together, I never heard any of the family members speak of their father, although I assumed that they must have. I was born in 44, and it was a crazy time with very serious events happening, irrespective of where you live. America was engaged in a World War II, and segregation was still in effect, even in Washington, D.C. I do not know when Ellen moved to Washington, but all of her children, except Dr. Charles Oscar Harris, Jr., never moved back to Alabama. 
Around the age of 17, Charles Oscar went to Oberlin Preparatory School and College for possibly a year, and then to Howard University as one of their first students. He was at Howard from 1868 to 1871, before returning to Montgomery. He married Ellen Hardaway, December 27, 1882. During his career, he worked in several politically related positions. First, as the poor collector of revenue, then assistant enrolling clerk in the Alabama House of Representatives, then chief mailing clerk, a presidential appointment that he held for 30 years. He was elected as one of the last Reconstruction legislators in the Alabama legislature, 1876 to 1877. He was very active with local, state, and national politics. Dr. Bailey, from which I gained most of my information on my grandfather, more than I had gained from my family, mentioned that Charles was well-liked by both black and white communities, highly respected by various social, cultural, and political circles, and was associated with and was an early leader in various civil rights activities. I will now turn it over to Dr. Bailey to speak on those things. Thank you very much. I would just like to say I am overjoyed to be here today. This is a historic moment for me. I want to applaud Mr. Robert Hillier and Mr. Stephen Davis for their interest in their relatives, Charles Oscar Harris. We would not be here today if it were not for Scotty Kirkland and the kind people at the Alabama Department of Archives and History. We would not be here, in fact, if it were not for the excellent work of Mark Wilson and the Alabama Historical Association and the good people at Auburn University. I would just like to say that our theme 2020 and the future of Alabama history gives us an excellent opportunity to not only focus on statewide history, but also to focus on local history. Charles O'Harris was involved in many activities in post-Civil War Alabama. And the reason I want to profusely thank those family members is simply this. I have talked to many persons who I have connected to Reconstruction office holders, and I'm just impressed with the interest those family members have taken in their ancestors. And what I want to do today is just to talk about Charles Oscar Harris and some of his activities and some of the activities of his day. The state capitol was located two blocks from the residence of Charles Oscar Harris. So you can see he could get to the capitol in a matter of minutes. He was walking as many people did that day. But well, let's talk about some of the activities that went on during Charles Oscar Harris' life. We've already mentioned that he served in the Alabama legislature from 1876 to 1877. And one point we haven't focused on is that these were turbulent times for these black office holders, especially when Oscar Harris becomes an office holder, because Alabama at that time had been redeemed by Democrats. In other words, the Democrats were in charge of the governor's office and state government, and almost nobody welcomed black office holders. So it took a bit of courage during Reconstruction, but especially after the 
redemption by Democrats even seek political office in the state of Alabama. So we want to applaud Charles Oscar Harris and Hershey B. Cashin and many others who would even dare to seek political office in the state of Alabama. Now let's put a couple of other things in context. Alabama today brands itself as the cradle of the Confederacy and the birthplace of civil rights. Let's talk about the latter of the two. We have not discussed, many of us, the fact that the first civil rights bill in Alabama was introduced by Latter J. Williams, representative from Montgomery County in 1872. The next year, the first civil rights bill in the Alabama Senate was introduced by Jeremiah Harrison of Dallas County. These are some of the early civil rights bills that were introduced in the legislature, and each one of these bills was lost, stolen, or otherwise misplaced. So we don't have any account of what actually happened to those bills. The point is, we don't even discuss those civil rights bills when we begin to discuss Alabama history. But there's something else that we want to talk about here today that brings Charles Oscar Harris squarely into focus. For those persons who grew up in Montgomery in the decades past, they might remember the Weber's building on the corner of Monroe and Ferris Streets in downtown Montgomery. That was the Montgomery Theater. On March 11, 1875, a planned demonstration was held at that theater. The Civil Rights Bill of 1875 had just been passed the 1st of March, 1875, and a group of African Americans decided they would test the public accommodation feature of that Civil Rights Act of 1875. Charles Harris was among those John Williams Jones and Herschel Cashman. And I just want to add here that a son of Herschel Cashin married a daughter of Charles Oscar Harris. So you can see the Harris family and the Cashin families are blood relatives. Cal Wagner and his minstrel group had been invited to Montgomery with his minstrel shows and these are the white actors with the black faces. And he had promised his audience that he would give them much fresh and new material, new songs, new acts, everything. So this would be a big deal held at the Montgomery Theater. Harris and Cashin and Jones and Whitaker and Thomas Ashby and some of the others decided they would test that Civil Rights Act by sitting in the circle area that previously was designated for whites. So when Cal Wagner heard about the fact that these people planned to test that civil rights bill, he had alerted the ticket seller not to sell any tickets to anybody black for the section that was designated for whites. And you can just imagine the surprise on his face when he saw these African-Americans sitting in the section at the Montgomery Theater that was designated for whites. He asked those guys if they would quietly leave. And there were some white gentlemen in the audience that evening who were ready, willing, and more than likely able to come to the aid of Cal Wagner and helping these black gentlemen get out of that theater. But when they realized what Cal Wagner was willing to do, they left in a haste and the pandemonium broke out. And Cal Wagner assumed that was the end of it, not realizing 
That was just the beginning. The next day, they filed for a warrant because, after all, this was in violation of the Civil Rights Act of 1875. And Cal Wagner found success in that he found someone who would agree to his side, but those guys persevered. He filed another warrant. So he said it's best that he left Montgomery. With some aid from some prominent whites, he was able to catch a train and head for the Cater, Alabama. As the story is told, that train got out of Montgomery at the fastest speed you can imagine, going down hills and around curves and everywhere else because they wanted to get away from that black angry group that was after Cal Wagner for having denied them the opportunity to sit and enjoy that minstrel show. So this becomes the first planned civil rights demonstration I have record of for the state of Alabama. Now, in Mobile, around 1867, Lawrence Berry had engaged in what we might call a demonstration, but that wasn't a planned demonstration. Because of Charles Harris, we have to reframe the beginning of civil rights activities in the state of Alabama, and certainly we can now say that the cradle of civil rights, as we might want to call it, can go back to 1875 instead of any events that might have taken place in the 1950s. But the story doesn't end there. When the Constitutional Convention delegates met in Montgomery starting in May 1901, those delegates were determined to disenfranchise every African American possible. When they successfully did so with the Constitution of 1901, a group decided to challenge that Constitution. Jackson W. Dow led that group. Booker T. Washington in Tuskegee decided to secretly fund Wilfred H. Smith, a personal friend and a New York attorney, to represent that group. They filed in state court, and Booker T. Washington assumed that his petition would prevail because Thomas Booth Jones, a person whom he had insured and used his influence to become a judge in Montgomery. But that would not be the case. So that case was eventually appealed to the Supreme Court. It didn't work out any better for Booker T. Washington or Wilfred Smith. Here's the result of that court case. Giles was thrown out on technicalities the first because Giles has attacked the validity of the state constitution under which he sought to register, and the second because he had failed to claim the state courts that his rights as a United States citizen were denied, although that was the basis of his appeal. Here's what Smith wrote to Booker T. Washington. Much of this was done in secret, the relationship between Smith and Booker T. Washington. And Booker T. Washington had his secretary, Emma J. Scott, to use code names for all of the parties in these communications. Here's what Smith said to Washington, quote, To my mind, the Supreme Court took advantage of the only loophole in sight to get around the decision of a question fraught with so many important political consequences. We will have to find a way to hem them in as they do in playing checkers. End quote. Washington advised Smith to press on, 
But Smith and his attorneys advised Washington against any further work regarding that. And as most people know, African Americans in this country did not receive the right to vote until August 1965 when President Lyndon Johnson signed that voting rights bill. But the point is, in talking about Charles Harris, we want to set the record straight that black office holding and black office holders were not persons who did nothing. They were not persons who did not understand political issues. They were very intelligent persons, and they were concerned about more than just winning re-election. They were concerned about the electorate. They were concerned about the people, and they were all concerned about the state of Alabama. They were not persons who were unmindful of what was at stake. They understood political matters. So in closing, what can we say about Charles O. Harris and his colleague, but Charles O. Harris in particular? What we have before us is an opportunity to reframe African-American history, state history, Alabama history. We can actually say that because of Charles Harris and his group, Alabama and Montgomery become a cradle for civil rights activity. And because of Charles Harris, people in Alabama today can say that this state can lay claim not to one Nobel recipient, but actually to two, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Bunch, who became a son-in-law to Charles Harris, and he became a Nobel recipient in 1950. So I'm going to pass it back over to Ellen, and we will continue our discussion of Charles Oscar Harris. Thank you very much, Richard. That was great. The marker marks the family home of Charles Oscar Harris. It's a two-sided plaque, and I just wanted to say a little bit about the process of getting a plaque done. We really just have to thank everyone involved. It was not a daunting process at all, although I was a little intimidated at first by how we would do it. But the information that's required online is fairly minimal. And after that, our hand was held every step of the way. We submitted our text to Scotty, who helped us edit it a bit and in order to have the correct number of words and the lines and how much we could do. And Richard backed us up in making sure that we were accurate. It unfolded over a period of maybe three or four months. None of us lived there. So we were completely reliant on the Historical Association and the city and Dr. Bailey to help us through. So if we can do it from the two coasts of the country, you folks down there should have no problem at all. I just think it's a really marvelous opportunity for people to participate in history. And like I said, as a history teacher, I know there's an awful lot of American history that needs to be retaught to be inclusive and tell everybody's story. So it was really quite an honor to work on this with everyone. And we owe a debt of gratitude to Dr. Bailey. And thank you, Mark, for including us in your program. And now Scotty could not be here today, but he has some recorded words about historic markers. You know, I really think that the Charles Harris marker is a public history success story because it conveys, I think, all of the important aspects of what public history tries to do. We, of course, try to educate the general public and we try to talk to them about what's around them. 
the Harris marker does this, but it also provides a real connection between the study of history and between genealogy, bringing these people together. I remember when we had the dedication last April telling Dr. Bailey afterwards that I hoped that he felt like the marker and how it came about and the fact that his research into Charles Harris played such a pivotal role in it that I hope that he felt like that day was one of many crowning achievements in his illustrious career. I, I certainly feel that way. and We couldn't have done the marker without him. I think that the story here of bringing people together, bringing this far-flung family back to Alabama where it began, I think it's just incredible. It's definitely one of my favorite stories from my five years as marker chair. I think that it was important for us to put the names of the descendants on the back of the marker, the names of the children, and then to say that the marker had been installed by Charles Harris' descendants. This is a Reconstruction-era marker, but it's also a Great Migration Story marker. I think sometimes it's equally important to look at that aspect of history as well. The Harris marker, I think, is indicative of what we've been working on doing with the AHA marker program in the last several years. We're working towards telling more complete stories of Alabama history, and certainly we don't have nearly enough Reconstruction-era markers. If you're in a community that has a Charles Harris story of your own, or if you are in a community and you want to look at ways that you can improve the diversity and inclusion of your historical landscape, think about contacting us for the work to put in a marker. If you have any questions about the marker program, I will direct you to the AHA's website. There's a tab for historical markers and a new request tab that will give you all the guidelines, sample text, and my contact information. Thank you for giving me a few moments to talk about the program, and thanks again to Dr. Bailey and to Skip and Barbara and Mark and Maven, and I'm just very happy to speak to everyone about this public history success story in downtown Montgomery. Thank you. I've got a quick question for each of you. Barbara, as you reflect on being a teacher and discovering your own family story, do you think teachers could benefit from learning some of their own family history to help them with the teaching that they are doing? Oh, absolutely. But we need to have diverse teaching staffs, too. You know, we need to have people with diverse stories, and we need to encourage diversity in teaching staffs throughout the country. I taught in a very white part of the country, and I was always interested in black history, so I always taught that. So teachers always teach their own stories. You know what I mean? Teachers teach the experiences that they have had. So undoubtedly, I think in my teaching perspective, it bothers me when you hear mainstream talk about revisionist history or we're trying to rewrite history. We're trying to write it right. We're not trying to rewrite it. We're trying to tell everyone's story. And that's why these markers are so important and textbooks need to be changed. The winner gets to write the history and the history that Americans have written, a lot of it's just kind of mythology. And I know that's going to raise a lot of hackles, but we have to address that. And thank goodness for historians and people like Dr. Bailey who are willing to go in and let's just tell everybody's story. Yeah, Scotty said once these markers are placed and people understand the story and they see a living landscape of memory, it really is important. Skip, you talked about the granddaughter is the keeper of the ancestry file to help with all of the genealogy work that takes place in your family. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. 
Well, we thank her for helping as well. As you discovered this story and as you reflect on being the last of the grandsons, what do you hope future generations of your family will remember about Charles Oscar Harris? Oh, there have been two parts of that question. First, I hope future generations continue to do research in our family. My father-in-law was very active and wrote a full set of history on his family, which is out of North Carolina. And we have just built it into our lifestyle, talking about the history of our family. I hope they continue to find more and more about Charles Oscar Harris. I hope they continue to find more and more about the Hardaways and the Hasslers, well, actually part of my history as well. It never ceases to amaze me how much when you personalize history, you really learn a lot more than you think you learn. You learn about the times, the lifestyles, the cultures that are going on, the politics that exist I just try to endear the love of history and all my kids, and I hope they continue with my grandkids. Excellent. Well, you really illustrate how it is an entire family endeavor, and the way which this project has brought family members together is really quite beautiful and quite memorable. Dr. Bailey, thinking about Charles Harris, he's from Alabama, he's from Montgomery. He gets educated away. He probably could have had many opportunities outside of Alabama, but he came back to Montgomery. How does that influence your understanding of who he is as a person and as a leader? Well, first of all, just the fact that he decides to return to Alabama says something about him. He had become exposed to environments in Ohio and the nation's capital. I think he found himself a man on a mission. He probably said to himself that he's answering the clarion call of public service. He came back here and embarked on that very kind of mission, public service in the legislature, being active in the community. And let me just say something else. One of the things that a person will probably discern quite quickly in reading my book is how light complexion Charles Harris was. And that person might say that I know he did not identify with African-Americans of darker complexion. When you look at the record, I don't think there is any evidence whatsoever that Charles Harris distanced himself from the rest of his race who might have been dark in complexion. Let me give you a good example of that. Giles Giles, who worked at the post office, worked as a janitor there. Charles Harris might have said, I have a white-collar job in that I'm a clerk. I don't feel from where I'm sitting there was any kind of discord between the two of them. And I don't see anything else that might have indicated that Charles Harris did not identify with the black population at large. So what we have on our hands here, in effect, is a role model, a person who did not go around trying to ensure that he received more credit than he deserved or to take away credit from someone else. That's why I want to ensure that people such as Charles Harris are remembered and remembered as well. So, Barbara and Skip, when you first understood this story of his courage and commitment and determination, how does it make you feel as a descendant to be a part of this family? Barbara? Well, I knew after I had met my aunt that she was an amazing person. Like I said, in Hawaii, Helene Hale, she served in elective office every decade for 50 years. 
and she was the oldest member elected to the Hawaiian House of Representatives. She was elected at 80. And I campaigned with her when she was 80, when she was 82, and when she was 84. So I knew that once I found Charles Harris, she was in his mold. There was no doubt. Skip? When you grow up in the family that we grew up in, it was a professionally educated family. And uh, it puts a lot of pressure on the next generation who want to succeed and achieve as they have. When you find out about Elaine and her daughter, Indira, and her husband, who was a chief judge in California, it just runs to the family. And I just want to do this so that more and more families will realize how important history and education are to the local families in the future. Well stated. We have a question. How did Charles and Ellen meet? Is much known about their courtship. I'll take the first crack at that. I don't know how they met. But they part away, and Tuskegee uh, are very close together. When we came down for the dedication of the state flag, we drove over to Tuskegee and then drove back to Hardaway. It is not inconceivable that they were running in a certain level of class where they would come together. That's why it's so important for us to find the history of Charles Oscar Harris in his early youth. Was he born a slave? We don't know. There's so many other questions, as Richard clearly points out, that we don't have why did he come back to Alabama. Was it for the civil rights, the dedication, his purpose in life, or to marry Ellen Hardaway? All could be true. All could be all the above could be true. Dr. Bailey, do you have any thoughts on the courtship and their meeting? Well, first of all, let me just say I don't think it was an accident by contemporary standards. During that day, persons knew other persons of like affiliations, et cetera, et cetera. You knew people in your community, your network, if you will. So it was not difficult, by my estimation, for a Charles Harris to meet or to learn of an Ellen Hardaway. That would have been difficult. In fact, the parents probably knew each other. The Harris family knew that they had a son on their hands, and the Hardaway family knew that it had a daughter on its hands, and you want a certain son to meet a certain daughter and vice versa, but we don't know that for certain. But we can say that the communities were not so large, so broad, that a Harris would not have heard or known about a Hardaway and vice versa. Having met in those days was not difficult at all. That's how they met, when, where, we don't know if somebody introduced him. Much of this is conjecture, but we do know that it was not difficult. People socialized on weekends. They went to the churches on Sundays, et cetera, et cetera. A person in this church might have had a cousin who was a member of another church in a neighboring county or a neighboring community, and they saw this guy, they saw this gal, and they said, hey, this you get my drift. This is the way that people met in 19th century in rural settings. I would add to that as well, Richard, that we do know that Ellen Hardaway Harris was a teacher, so she herself was educated. I think she went to Fisk. And uh, we know that her family home was very near there. So she was born and raised in Montgomery, very near that same family home that is where the marker is. So we do know that they lived nearby. 
and that she spent her life in Montgomery. So it would be easy for them to meet, I would think. So when we see that historic marker and learn about Charles Karras, we know the story behind the story, which is as compelling as the story itself. We are thankful that now we know about Charles Oscar Harris. Now we can help interpret his life in its context and all of the questions that you raise and more give us future opportunities for study, interpretation, and discussion. And so we are thankful to all three of you and to Scotty Kirkland for chairing our marker committee to make this program possible. And we look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.